Good to see you this morning, New Life East. If this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, it's a joy to have you in our house this morning. Happy Father's Day to you. Yay, there it is. Okay, thanks. I appreciate it. We live in a culture, you know, that denigrates dads, denigrates fatherhood, I think makes fun of it a lot. But I just want to say to you dads, especially to you young dads, I think in the room I feel a burden for you this morning. Uh, fatherhood is an image of our God, and it's one of the most profound images of our God that we have. We don't know why God chose the vehicle of fatherhood to reveal himself in the world as father, but he did. And there's something about it that's really important. I got four kids of my own, Ethan, Gabe, Bella, and Liam. And one of the things that I have learned is that the way that we image our God, and this now I'm especially speaking to you young dads, the way that we image our God as father in our homes is by staying as close to the Heavenly Father as we can. Now, there's something about our proximity to God our Father that transforms us. It makes us more likely to be that image of fatherhood in our home that we've been called to be. And so stay close to God, I would say to you young dads. And the other thing that I would say to all of the dads in the room is that, uh, man, one of the things that I have learned over the last 16 years is that there is every temptation to try to protect ourselves by not saying, like not admitting our failures and our foibles and our flaws. But man, one of the best things that you can do for your kids and in your family is say sorry a lot. And all of us probably in some way, at some point, we've had experiences of fatherhood or fatherhood, we experience it as proud and haughty in some way. And I'm just saying, our God is a God who humbles himself, which means that you don't have to be afraid to humble yourself. And so live close to Jesus, live close to the Father, live close to humility, and I promise you're going to do a good job for your kids. And also, one last thing I'll say to you, is that um, you cannot be, you know, if our culture denigrates fatherhood, sometimes in our attempt to get it back, we put a ton of pressure on ourselves. And you cannot be everything for your kids that they need from you. And you're going to fail them. And there's going to, there's gaps in how you parent them. And so one of the most important things that you can do as a dad is to turn your kids constantly over to the heavenly father, trusting that God is able to fill in all of those gaps. Can you receive that this morning if you're dads? All right, we're good. And the rest of you just, you know, golf clap along with me. Okay, great. Good to see you all. Okay, we've got, a, I'm talking about uh, the Holy Spirit this morning, and uh, we've been in the series called Who is God? Looking at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, Pastor Rory did a wonderful job last week talking about how the Spirit regenerates our lives, actually gives us a new life. And this morning, I want to pick up where he left off and talked about, talk about the Spirit as the sanctifying Spirit. The Spirit sanctifies us. That word, sanctification, is actually a really crucial word in the history of Christian theology. Uh, typically, uh, theologians have talked about the order of salvation moving along uh, certain kind of broad strokes. And the first broad stroke would be justification. That when we first come into a saving relationship with God, that what God does is he justifies us. You say, Andrew, that's a really big word. I'm not really under, I don't really know what it means. Well, do you remember, uh, well, you know, when you're using Microsoft Word, how there's like uh, those tabs at the top? where you can like left justify or you can right justify or you can like center justify things. You know that? Like alignment. It's what it's really about. Justification is about alignment. And so what happens in justification is that God takes our lives, which were out of alignment with him, 
and he justifies them. He makes them flush with his own righteousness and goodness. That's really the first big step in the process. The third big step, I'm skipping a step here for a second. Third big step in the process, if justification is the beginning, glorification is where God takes us. So at the end of all things, when sin is finally purged from our members, we're revealed fully as sons and daughters of the living God. We're glorified in God. And so we have justification and glorification. And in between is sanctification. It's the long process whereby God pushes sin out of our members and actually makes us holy. It turns out that it's a really important word in the New Testament. When you look at the writings of the Apostle Paul, the other apostles, you'll see that this word sanctify or sanctification pops up over and over again. Here's Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, may God himself, this is his blessing at the end of the letter, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. So God is sanctifying the body and the soul and the mind of the, all of our being. He's sanctifying that for himself. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul makes an explicit connection between sanctification and the work of the Spirit here where he says, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you as firstfruits to be, to be saved through the sanctifying work of who? The Spirit and through belief in the truth. So sanctification is explicitly connected to whatever it is the Spirit is doing in our lives. First Peter chapter 1, Peter reflects the same outlook when he says he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ, God's elect scattered throughout these provinces. Next slide, verse 2. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So who sanctifies us? The Spirit sanctifies us. When we come into an encounter with the Spirit, there's a sanctifying work that takes place. But what do we mean by sanctification? How do we define it? And I want to give you three dimensions to God's sanctifying work in our lives all of which build upon and depends upon one another. And so to sanctify, let's just work with the definition here. I want to give you the first kind of definition of sanctify. Is to sanctify is to recruit something for divine use. Everybody say to recruit for divine use. It's the first understanding of sanctification is that God recruits things for divine use. And all through the scriptures you see God doing this, that he'll take ordinary objects and he'll take places and he'll take people and he recruits them for divine use. He pulls them into the orbit of his agency. Exodus chapter 19, look at this text. The Lord says he's delivered them up out of Egypt and he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. And now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be a, for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you're to speak to the Israelites. So even though he doesn't use the word sanctification there, that's what's being hinted at. That what God does with his people is he pulls them up out of Egypt and he recruits them for divine use. You're a kingdom of priests and you're a holy nation. I have plans for how I'm going to use you that will make a difference in the world. To be sanctified is to be recruited for divine Use. God does this all the time. I think about actually what we do when we gather in this space on Sunday mornings. Like I remember when we were driving by, uh, this was several years ago now, three years ago, we were driving by this property for the first time and 
it was just dirt and they were just beginning to erect the frame of this. And so we started a conversation with the foreman that day. And I said, hey, what's the building that's going up there? They said a school is going up there. We said, do you, do you think we could have a conversation with the people that are starting the school? Because we're a church and maybe we could meet in there. And they said, sure. And we, so we started talking with them and they built this whole building and we entered into an agreement with them. And like the designation of this building is to be a school. And yet what we do on Sunday mornings is we get in here and we set up the chairs and we plug in all the stuff and we get the band up here and then we start kind of praying in this space and getting ready. And all of a sudden now, two and a half years later, three years later, we've had like piles of sacred experiences in this place. Why? Because somehow through our efforts, God has claimed this place for sacred use. He's made it something. Or I think about what happens in worship when we gather for worship. I think about the high point of worship for us traditionally throughout the history of Christianity. And we, the pattern of our worship reflects this as well. But what do we do? What's the high point of our worship? It's communion. And so what are we doing? We're taking bread and cup. And it's nasty bread. You've had it. Very awful. And that grape juice is not great grape juice. But we take it. And we speak sacred words over it. We bless it. We invite the Spirit's presence. We offer it up to the Lord. And then somehow it's given back to us. And we believe that that, that, that encounter with the bread and the cup, somehow that becomes an encounter with the living Lord Jesus himself. That's sanctification. That God takes these ordinary things and he transforms them and gives them back to us so that they're vehicles for his agency to work in our lives. That, guys, is what God is doing with each of our lives. Think about what Paul says to the Roman church, Romans chapter 12. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as what? A living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is what God it does. I think about my own journey with the Lord. I've known the Lord my whole life, born and raised in church. When I got into my teenage years, that's when I started to really come into an awareness of God. And I can remember those years, 15, 16, 17 years old, where the Spirit was becoming so very real to me. And I remember the impulse of my heart in those moments. The impulse was, God, wherever do you want me to go? And whatever you want me to be and whatever you want me to do, my life is yours. It belongs to you. And God has made good on that offer that I made to him. Always claiming my life more. That's sanctification. Andrew, what are you doing with your time? Give that over to me. Andrew, what are you doing with your intellect? Why don't you give that over to me? Andrew, what are you doing with your agency? Give that over to me. Your money and your relationships and all that you are and all that you have, yield that to me and let me use that. Guys, that's sanctification. And by the way, God doesn't just do this with pieces of our lives. But Paul says to offer your whole bodies as a living sacrifice. It's all that we are and all that we have. And you may be sitting here this morning and you're going, well, Andrew, of course you would feel that way. You're called to be a pastor, so you're like a religious extremist, you know, virtually by definition. But this is the call that's actually given to all Believers, think about what happens when you get baptized. You enter into the waters of baptism and you come back up out again. You're given over completely to the Lord at that point. Like, I've got news for you. The moment you got baptized, the moment the Spirit claimed you in the waters 
of baptism, you forfeited the right to think about your life as an arena of self-glorification. We were given over to God. Your lives, Paul says, are not your own. Therefore, honor God with your body. So as we consider who we are and where we're going, what we're always doing is we're going, God, what pleases you? Here's this money that you've given me. How do you want me to use it? Am I going to use this money to build an empire for myself? Or am I using this money to care for the least of these and the last and the lost, those that are on the fringes? God, here is my intellect. Am I going to use my intellect to try to get ahead in life and build up my name and make myself greater? Do I use my intellect to think the thoughts of God and to bring creative ideas to expression in the world that serve people and bring glory to God? God, here's my sexuality. Do I use my sexuality as an arena of self-gratification or is even my sexuality a place that you want to use a vehicle for your glory to come into the world. Friends, this is the call that's given to each one of us. That as we are sanctified, we're being recruited for divine use. You remember the old bracelets that they used to give? WWJD, what would Jesus do? That was a little bit on the cheesy side, but I think it reflects what the Bible commends to us. How would Jesus Christ live my life if he were me? If he lived in my neighborhood with my relationships and my resources, my disposition, my talents, how would Jesus use this? And Jesus, as we know, did everything under the glory of his God and everything for the good of other people. Jesus actually says, for them I sanctify myself that they may be truly sanctified. Jesus, the sanctified one, comes to dwell in us so that we might live sanctified lives. How are you thinking about your life? Is your life an arena of self-glorification and gratification or is it an arena for the glory of God to be revealed in the world? Sanctification definition number one is to recruit for divine use, which takes us into the second definition of sanctification, and that is to be included in the divine presence. And so it's not just as though God kind of collects things. He collects people for divine use, and then he sort of puts them in the closet over here. And when I need this, you know, I'll call on it you or it or whatever. But God, as he sanctifies things, he actually brings them into the arena of the divine presence. Look at what Moses says here in Exodus chapter 29. This is at the end of a long process of God describing how he intends to come and dwell with the people. And they have a whole religious cult here that they're going to sanctify. They sanctify the tabernacle and they sanctify the basins and they sanctify the altar and they sanctify the priesthood consecrating all of these things, recruiting them for divine use. And watch what the Lord says here about the purpose for their being consecrated, dedicated, sanctified. For the generations to come, the Lord says, the burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. And there I will, what? I will meet you and I will speak to you. And there also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated. That's another word for sanctify sanctified, consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. And then I will, what's the word there? Dwell among the Israelites and be their God. Verse 46, they will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt. What does the text say? Yes, I'm the Lord, their God. Why does God sanctify people? Presence is the stated goal of sanctification. God's dream 
from the very beginning of Scripture has been to move in to planet Earth. And he does that first by moving in among a people. I'm sanctifying you so that I might dwell among you. I am the Lord your God. This goal of God's dwelling among the people, it also answers the thing that I think is the first hunger, the first thirst of the human heart. Augustine said it so well many centuries ago where he said, You awaken us, O God, to delight in your praise, for you have made us for yourself, and our souls are, does anybody know it? Restless until they rest in you. Communion with God is the first hunger of the human heart. The Orthodox priest, Father Alexander Shmiman, said it like this. He said that behind all the hunger of our lives is a hunger for God. Think about that. And this is why we see what we see, by the way, in the world that we live in. It astonishes me how much you can, no matter how hard we try, you can't like excise this hunger, this thirst for holiness from the human heart. Just returned from a trip uh, to the Holy Land last week. And I was astonished all week long. I was astonished at this. We're seeing all these sacred sites, visiting these sacred places, places like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where it's believed that the tomb where Jesus was laid in is there. We visited the Church of the Nativity, the spot where Jesus was born, the Church of the Shepherds out in the Shepherd's Field. We visited those places. We visited the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall in Jerusalem, where the temple used to stand. And I'm watching place after place after place. We walked the Via Dolorosa, where Jesus went on the way to Golgotha. We went to Golgotha itself, all of these places. And I, place after place after place after place. I was so astonished watching people coming to these ordinary physical objects that happen to house sacred significance. And they'd lay their hand on the wall or lay their hand on a piece of rock and overcome by religious emotion. And they'd emerge from these experiences, tears streaming down their face. What are they doing? They're trying to answer that human hunger for holiness. If I can just get in contact with the holy. That's so fundamental to who we are. While we were in the Tel Aviv airport, we were lounging in the LL airport lounge. And as we're just eating our food and catching up with each other, kind of debriefing on the week, all of a sudden we saw this line of people just to our left begin to form in front of what looked like a Jewish rabbi sitting over here. And this line spontaneously like forms in front of this guy. And these folks are like getting down on their knees in front of this guy who, as it turns out, is a famous Jewish rabbi who had these like, prophetic abilities, and they're down on their knees in front of him, just like waiting for him to speak a word of blessing over them. And as he's speaking a word of blessing or a prophetic word, again, you're watching tears streaming down people's faces. Why is that happening? Because what we hunger for first in our lives, what we hunger for last in our lives, and what we hunger for at every moment of our lives is we hunger for contact with God. We're trying to come in contact with the holy. And God answers that desire by saying, I'm actually sanctifying you so that I might dwell among you. We can't get rid of it. C.S. Lewis said it so beautifully in The Weight of Glory when he wrote this, talking about beauty, talking about glory, talking about holiness. He says, we don't merely want to see Beauty, And when he says beauty, you can substitute holiness. That's really what he's talking about here. He says, we don't merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. But we want something else which can hardly be put into words. We want to be united with the beauty that we see. 
to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, and to become part of it. Well, that's why we have peopled air and earth and water with gods and goddesses and nymphs and elves, that though we cannot yet these projections enjoy in themselves that beauty, grace, and power of which nature is the image. Well, that's why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into the human soul, but it can't. Or they tell us that the beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into a human face, but it won't, or not yet. For if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry, so false as history, may be very near to the truth as prophecy. At present, he said, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they don't make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. For someday, God willing, we shall get in. Our thirst, our hunger is to enter into holiness. And Lewis says that one day at the end of all things, we'll get fully into that. But what the New Testament claims is that in the encounter with the Spirit, we're getting into it now. And it's getting into us now. That's why we come here for worship. You are not here because you're trying to check the religious box. Oh, I don't know. It gets God off my back. Do you know why you're here? Because you're hungry for God. (laughs) Do you want holiness? You're looking for the glory of God. You're trying to find that thing that will satisfy your soul and only God can satisfy it. And the claim of the New Testament is that the encounter with the Spirit does that to us. By the Spirit, we're both brought into God and God is planted in us. We're all tangled up with the divine life. So if the first definition of sanctify is to recruit for divine use, the second definition is that we're actually included in the divine presence. We're brought into it. We're made part of it, which satisfies the deepest thirst of the human heart, which leads me to the third thing about sanctification. With this, we'll begin to make the turn into communion. Is that to be sanctified is to be made compatible with the divine character. That as we're included in the divine life, what God begins to do in us is he sorts out all of those things in us that are are not in alignment with the divine character, the divine nature. And insofar as those things can be redeemed and set right, he redeems them and sets them right. And insofar as they cannot be redeemed or set right, do you know what he does? He kills them dead. He's bringing us into his life. He's making our lives compatible with the divine life. Think about what the Lord says to his people in Leviticus chapter 19. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, you shall be what? Why? Do you realize that that's both a command and a promise? That the Lord says to his people, I, holy God, dwell in your midst. So you're going to be holy as I am holy. And so they have work to do, but it's also a promise That as I dwell among you, as you dwell in proximity with me, what's going to happen is you're going to be made like me. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus. And then he ends by saying, the one who calls you is faithful. And who will do it? He will do it. You will be holy 
as I am holy. When God gets close to us and when we get close to God, something of divine life comes into us and we start looking like God. This is why Paul says what he says in Galatians chapter 5, that the fruit of the Spirit is... Why is this like, okay, so when the Spirit comes to us, it produces that in us. But why does the Spirit produce that in us? Because that's what God is like. God is love. God is peace. God is joy. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the divine DNA. That's the divine character. And so salvation, what salvation is, is God planting the divine DNA, the divine character in us. It's putting the divine life in us so that all of a sudden that starts growing up out of us. We come to look like God is. One of the great saints of the church, the early church used to talk this way all the time, that this is what salvation is. Salvation is not God like giving us a ticket to heaven that we can punch one day when we die. But salvation is union with God. Athanasius said that God became man in Jesus Christ so that we human beings might become like God. We become sons and daughters of God in the Son, Jesus Christ. I think about my kids, one of the funniest, to me, like one of the things that's consistently hilarious about parenting is how much your kids are like you, whether you or they realize it or not, you know? I remember, uh, I remember when our oldest, Ethan, was a little guy, probably a year and a half or so, just starting to talk and kind of tootle around the house a little bit. And Ethan, like Ethan's favorite thing to say was, oh man, he was always saying, oh man, all the time. Oh man, oh man, oh man, oh man. And he said he would do it like this broken record thing. It was so bizarre. Oh man, oh man, oh man, oh man, oh man. And one day we caught him. He was sitting at the screen door looking out of our front porch with his hands on the like, window like this and just saying it. Oh man, 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 oh man. And we were, I swear, Mandy and I were so concerned. <laughs> like, does he have a devil or something? <laughs> Stretch out your hands, fam. You know, pray for him. We need a counselor, therapy, something. We need a child specialist. Somebody go to work on this child. And so we had a friend over one day, and we were kind of like sharing our woes about Ethan and our concern about him. With the, and he says, oh, man, like all the time. And our friend said to us, you know why he says, oh, man, all the time? We said, why? And she said, because you say, oh, man, all the time. And I said, oh, man, I do not. So we started watching each other, you know, language police there. Sure enough, I was saying, oh, man, for everything. Statement of joy. Oh, man. Statement of consternation. Oh, man. You know, statement of confusion. Oh, man. Like, I'm, so why is Ethan saying, oh, man, all the time? Ethan spends a lot of time with his dad. And his dad is saying, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, all the time. We pick up right? The people that we're around, we pick up what they do. It just kind of like gets into us by osmosis, the genetics, DNA. That's what it is. You ever seen my dad walking around here? My parents will visit, you know, every few times every year. And anybody that meets my dad, the first thing they always say, they'll watch him walk into a room and they'll go, that's exactly the way that you walk. It's the aren't walk. It's this sort of semi-casual pseudo-purposeful saunter, you know, and it's weird, and I can't really do it, but you, you do it. That, that's what it is. Guys, and this is, that's a faint analogy of the divine life. 
we were children of another father. But somehow by the power of the Holy Spirit, what happens to us is the divine DNA gets in us. And as we grow up in holiness, as we're sanctified, it gets to the point where people go, well, you look just like your dad. Your dad is kind. Your dad is good. Your dad is generous. Your dad loves his enemies. In fact, he sent his son to die for his enemies. You're just like your dad. That's sanctification, guys. And the world is desperate for a sanctified people. One of the things I think that we're beleaguered by in North American Christianity is that our idea of sanctification, our ideas of holiness have been reduced to these stupid cultural things, you know, like don't drink, smoke, or chew, or run with girls that do, or whatever. You've heard that. You haven't heard that? Whatever. That was a thing way back when. Anyway, am I going to be able to finish this message? I'm going to try. It's stupid, cultural. You know, what's holiness? Well, holiness is don't smoke cigarettes and don't drink and don't watch Harry Potter. That's holiness. And so we've rendered the whole concept of holiness innocuous and irrelevant to the dying needs of our world, guys. And we've made it stale. We've made it boring. But if you've ever been around a person who's really been sanctified, who's being made like their father in heaven, there is nothing more exciting and beautiful on planet earth than that. When people come to look like their father in heaven and behave like their father in heaven, it's inspiring and it's healing. We met with a guy, family over in, uh, went to visit Bethlehem. Bethlehem is behind the West Bank. You know the story, the political story, all the turmoil in that region of the world. And Bethlehem, the West Bank, the wall is 17 feet. It's awful, terrible situation. Palestinians and, is, and, and people of the nation of Israel having difficulty getting along. And what are we going to do about this whole thing? And this guy, Palestinian Christian, has lived on his land his entire life. And his land has been in his family for 100 years. He's got the paperwork to prove it. His grandfather bought that land and they've been on that land. And about 20 years ago, the Israeli government came to him and said, you know, this land belongs to us. We feel like our claim here is more fundamental. So you need to move off the land. He said, this is my land. My grandpa lived here. My dad lived here. My parents lived here. We've built this. This is our place. You can't displace us from our place. And so they've been in a 20-year protracted legal battle with the Israeli government over there, just trying to hang on to their land and trying to do it in a way that reflects the character of Jesus. And life has been made miserable for them. No running water, no electricity. The government has said to them, you're not allowed to build anything more on your land. And so if they want to do any additions to their property, they're digging underground, like building conference rooms underground. It's the whole thing. And he said, you know, when this first started to happen to us, we realized that there were at least three potential responses that we could have to this injustice that's falling upon us. Number one, he said, we could cower in fear and retreat and just cave in. But we knew there was something in our spirits that told us that wasn't the right thing to do. He said, and we started thinking, what's the other response we could have? The other response is that we just rise up and we become violent. Take it back and you're not going to do that to us. We could cause that injustice that's coming our way to rebound as violence. He said, but we knew that that wasn't in keeping with the way of Jesus. So the third response, he said, as we realize that in spite of all of this stuff happening, and actually because all of this stuff is happening, because we are who we are, sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, we will not allow these people to make themselves our enemies. (laughs) We live in a world that is tearing itself to pieces. 
And the great call of the church from the first century down to our present century is to rise up as sons and daughters of the living God who walk in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And we're sitting here with this guy, Daoud is his name. We're sitting with Daoud. And I'm looking at him and thinking about what it would be like for me if some powerful group was coming in and trying to take away my home and my land and my possessions and all I'd worked for, how easy it would be to become bitter and jaded and cynical. And yet this man was radiant with the joy of the Lord and kept saying, we will not be their enemies. Guys, that's holiness. That's sanctification. We're made like God. And so our call is to offer ourselves to the Lord, right? To be made holy as he is holy and to let his spirit do the work in us. And so I want to invite you to, to stand as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning. We're going to sing this song here, an old song that I'm sure you know. It's a song of consecration. It's a song of dedication. It's a song where we take all that we are and all that we have. Time, talent, possessions, heart, desire, hopes and dreams. And we give them over to the Lord. And so church, would you do this this morning? Hold your life, all that you are, all that you have before God. And now sing this song together and let's sing it as a prayer. Take my life and let me be consecrated, Lord, to take my Take my hands. beautiful. Would you hold your communion elements in your hands this morning? Would you respond? The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Would you give him thanks and praise?
out loud for the things in your life right now. Just lift them up to him for being tucked into this community, for being led here today, for the hard things in your life that you can feel the Holy Spirit is doing to consecrate you, to set you apart for him, what he is calling you towards. We become like the things that we surround ourselves with. We become like what we consume. And so what is not lost on me when we come to the table in Eucharist is that we are holding in our hands what represents the body and the blood of Jesus, and we're going to consume this. So what this is representative is that we, as we consume Jesus in our bodies, but as we consume Jesus, as we spend time with Jesus, that we will spend time with him. And the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, spent time with his disciples around a dinner table. That's how we become like Jesus, as we spend time with him, just like the disciples did. And after he had given thanks, just like we have done, he took the bread and broke it. Would you break the bread? And as you feel that snap in your fingers, would you remember that he was pierced for your transgression? His body was broken for you. Would you receive the bread in remembrance? And in the same night, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I have a new relationship with you. That it is through this, this blood that we see the world differently, that we see those around us differently. Would you remember your baptism, as you look at this cup, would you remember the agreement that you've made with God, that God has with you, that he loves you? He wants you to be like him. He wants you to remember. Would you receive the cup as you remember? Thank you, Jesus. We respond in praise to what Jesus has done for you. Would you lift your voice in doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Family, would you lift your hands, receive this benediction as you go. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. I'll invite our altar ministry team to come forward if you need prayer for anything. We would love to pray with you this morning. A happy Father's Day to you. Go home and 
grill or smoke some meats or something. Do something manly. Wield a chainsaw maybe. I don't know. Maybe don't. If you don't have experience with it, maybe just the meats. Just stick with the meats. That would be good. You are loved. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you next Sunday.